Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? I'm doing good, man. Preparing for the Bitcoin having 21-hour live stream that Bitcoin Magazine is putting on. I have kind of taken all the editorial um, responsibility on that one, so it's a lot of fucking work. But I have like this rundown, and ed- everything is color coded on the rundown based on like what the content is and how like how far along we are to confirming it and locking it down. And two days ago, it was all red, and now it's almost all completely green. So I feel good. Fantastic. I'm, I'm really happy that you're learning these skills because we're just going to re-attribute them to POV Crypto and improve our live stream game coming up soon. So this is definitely going to repurpose those for sure. Yeah, as soon as I have a life. <laughs> yeah, I've heard you're really busy lately. So tip of the hat for being a good good servant to, to Bitcoin and also working and grinding at, uh, at uh, Bitcoin Media, BTC Media. Speaking of conferences and shit, uh, all you guys listening to this right now, I hope you guys tune in to my Friday talk, uh, Settlement Assurances in the Protocol Sync Thesis. I think this is a talk that Bitcoiners and Ethereans alike can all resonate with and hopefully rally behind. Christian, I'm, I'm excited to get your take on it uh, once it's out there. Uh, that's for, uh, what's it called, Ethereal? The Ethereal Virtual Summit. Yeah, so that's happening uh, this Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Pacific Time. Uh, so tune in. It's it's free to sign up and, and watch. It's going to be a good-ass time. Cool. I'll be there. Um, dude, t- talking about all this stuff that was supposed to happen in New York is making me so freaking sad. Like, this was supposed to be the third having in New York. Like, what a freaking party. Plus, you know, all the NYC blockchain week stuff happening. Uh, it's kind of bum. It's kind of a bummer. Like, you would be doing this talk live. It would be fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm hoping to make lemon out of lemonade with it. Like I think you've you've definitely been doing this. I've definitely been doing this too where like people have migrated onto doing stuff on Zoom and there's pros to that too. Um it, not just like with conferences and stuff, but just socially. Like I've just been having like social Zoom hangouts with crypto people, which I always appreciate and I love going to ETH Denver and hanging out with the boys, right? The crypto boys. But uh, I don't. That would only ever happen like once, twice a year. But now I have Zoom calls with all all my friends like way more often. And so like socially, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, drinks and quarantine on Bitcoin Magazine has been amazing, and I've gotten like some serious quality time with some really really quality Bitcoiners. So that's been a lot of fun. Speaking of quality, we have one of the most important people in the ETH2 development space, Danny Ryan, onto the show. Uh, this was a fun one, but before, going to be throwing out a quick shout out to my friends at Mousebell and Block TV. They are organizing another virtual summit. This one is in a little bit, May 18th. Not going to rub up against any of the New York blockchain stuff, but they got a really solid lineup. Uh, Bill Bartwright, a bunch of people from the Web3 Foundation, Blockchain Capital, people from Anheuser-Busch are into Bitcoin and crypto. Uh, so it's going to be awesome. Uh, I think they want me and David to moderate some talks. We'll see if that actually happens. Uh, I might be on vacation. But regardless, um, it's it's looking like a really solid, uh, solid piece of content. And Block TV is uh, behind it as well. So check it out. Uh, it is www.r2020.io. And again, shout out to Mouse Belt for always hustling and putting on a good time. 
yeah looking forward to it that's gonna that's definitely gonna be a good time um i'm i'm like everyone else getting into the groove of virtual conferences so i'm i'm, I'm excited to to sharpen my sharpen my knife with uh with stuff like that getting into the episode go for it go for it Getting into the episode with Danny Ryan. For those that don't know, Danny Ryan is the coordinator of coordinators of sorts. It's a pretty unofficial position that has kind of accidentally become official, maybe, kind of. Uh, so with ETH2, there is the ETH2 spec that's been developed. And now there are all of these ETH2 client teams that are all building out their version of Ethereum 2. And then the whole idea is that all these ETH2 clients begin to communicate with each other. They're, the clients are interoperable, right? And so ETH2 has multiple different clients that are all interoperating with each other. And, and that once all of those are synced together, then that is the Ethereum2 network. Uh, Danny Ryan is the guy that is like in the hub of the spokes uh, for the, all of these ETH2 client teams coordinating with problems, you know, you know different ETH2 implementations come across different problems. And so he helps them coordinate and sync, make sure that the spec is being interpreted, interpreted the same across all these different client teams. And is generally just a, a, he's a coordinator of coordinators, which is a really interesting perspective to take when we're building this, what may be become a ground, just a ground based breaking piece of technology. So we bring him on to the episode, talk, a, a, talk about the experience of coordinating uh, different teams and and what it's like just being in the middle of ETH2 development. Yeah, this episode was relatively uh, relatively technical. Uh, we definitely kept it more professional and wanted to understand what Danny does, just because it's so pivotal in whatever is happening in Ethereum's future. Uh, but Danny is a feisty guy, and he was trying to come at me with uh, comparisons to Bitcoin and stuff like that too. So we're gonna definitely get him back on for more of a fight night style show. Uh, but regardless, you know, this is a really good episode. And uh, for those of you who are just trying to better understand, like, WTF is up with E2, what's happening there, this is exactly what you want to be listening to. And without further ado, let's just get into it. Danny Ryan. Danny Ryan, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Danny, for those that don't know, can you kind of uh, explain your role in the uh, progress and development of Ethereum? Yes, I will try at least. Um, <clears throat> so I work at the Ethereum Foundation. Uh, I'm technically on the research team. Um, I do do some research, uh, some consensus mechanism research, stuff on Casper, that kind of stuff, sharding. Um, I also do a lot of spec writing. Um, and maybe more importantly, I do a lot of coordination for um, the project called ETH2, um, meaning I coordinate a lot with researchers, I coordinate a lot with people that are doing testing, I coordinate a lot with client developers, and increasingly so other people that are like touching and building on this thing. Um, obviously, that assumes that you know what ETH2 is, uh, but maybe we can get into that in a second. Yeah, we, we definitely will. Uh, but before, as we go further is it fair to call you the um not not that uh it, there is one central point but a central point of ethereum development are you are you at the center of it all maybe yes from some perspective but also no um we there's a lot going on uh this project 
uh, ETH2 is a huge project. Ethereum, obviously, is an even bigger project uh, itself. But ETH2 is a very large project. We have tons of teams, um, you know, depending on the day, seven, six, seven clients building out this thing. Uh, we have teams at the EF working on this. We have teams, R&D teams at Consensus working at this. Um, at tons of like increasingly just small project individuals, grants uh, touching this project. And I do generally communicate with most people across those things and try to keep the project moving. There's a lot of kind of different communicators throughout the, uh, throughout the beast, but I probably touch more of it consistently than anyone else. Um, and that's probably primarily just cause I, well, at this point, because I, that's just what I do. But at the beginning, um, it just, someone needed to do it and it's fun. Uh, there's a lot of uh, incredible people to work with. Um, and by doing this, I just get to have like this incredible view of, of the project and get to work with awesome people in every domain. Um, so central in some perspective, um, cr critical maybe today, but if I disappeared, uh, someone else would fill the role. There's a, a ton of people that are super qualified. Um, so central acting centrally, but not critically. So you just fell into this role. You, you know. weren't appointed. <laughs> this wasn't a open position. Uh, you just saw a need for a coordinator of sorts and, and you hopped into it. Is that accurate? That's generally accurate. I, I already worked. So I started working with the Ethereum foundation. Um, cause I started contributing to, Casper FFG, when we were doing hybrid proof of work, proof of stake, I started doing some testing on that contract and kind of started taking over some of the development in that domain and kind of pro bono on my own and then uh, got onboarded into the EF. When that project was deprecated and we moved to this unified proof of stake and sharding protocol uh, called ETH2, and increasingly there was there was interest from all sorts of parties um, who wanted to, to contribute to this thing, I increasingly just told people, Hey, if you, if you have a question, I can probably find the answer. Like I probably know the answer. And if I don't, I can find the answer. And I was just kind of for a handful of months, I just made it known people that were onboarding and coming like new clients, new people that were getting interested, just like, Hey man, hit me up. I'll, I'll figure it out for you. Um, mainly cause there's, there's people, there's people working on this thing that are way smarter than me. Um, that, that like are deeper in the research and deeper into, uh, the deep shit, uh, than I, and, and I kind of wanted to just act as like a buffer, <laughs> honestly, like say for Vitalik, like he doesn't need people knocking on his door every day. So I figured I'll be the guy you can knock on my door. Um, and increasingly so, you know, as we built out the, the specs repo, as we started having these calls, I just, that role spun into, uh, coordinating those repos, coordinating those calls and that kind of stuff. So it, it, was a little bit of impetus on my end, just saying like, okay, I can, I can probably answer your questions if you need. Um, and just kind of snowballed from there. Um, I think it's a relatively good fit for me. I I'm reasonably technical. I have an engineering background. I can handle a lot of this research. Um, but I like talking to people, I like communicating. So, you know, those things round out nicely. So part of Ethereum's structure is that it's just a bunch of different clients that are all operating around the same system. Uh, and that's going to hold true for Ethereum 2.0. And, and the main coordination requirements that I see are coordinating client teams so that they are all, you know, being a, going to be able to interoperate seamlessly with each other. 
Uh, and so I, I've seen, I see you as a coordinator of coordinators where each individual client team has its own internal coordinator, but they also need to communicate with other client teams and, and they pass through you. Is that, is that accurate? I mean, the, we're all talking all the time. Uh, so they don't necessarily like, I'm, I'm not just like passing messages back and forth necessarily, but they, um, in terms of, I think first and foremost for the past more than a year now, uh, the, the coordination that I'm serving is like uh, unifying research and specifications with actual implementation um, and tying those together. Um, and in tying, in tying those to individual clients, I'm thus tying the clients together because we're all end up working on the same thing. Um, when, you know, when, when we're trying to work through say client A thinks this, client B thinks this, client C thinks this, um, in terms of like how to interpret spec or proper way forward. Um, I do try to make sure that we can all like sit down and hash it out. I try to make sure that we have, uh, you know, aren't just yelling at each other on the internet and like take it to like a more structured issue to talk about, um, weigh out the pros and cons. Um, so in that I do, I do connect the client teams and more, more and more um, as we move further and further near production, uh, a lot of the, the problems are less like, how do I interpret the spec? It's more, or, you know, how do I interpret the intention of the researchers here? Like, what is the, what is the trade-off actually happening here? It's, it's more like, okay, we can structure the networking protocol like this. It has certain advantages. We can structure it like this. It has certain advantages. And just, so it's, it's moving more into engineering problems and more towards the client problems. Um, and so in that, like, I do try to make sure that we can hash it out, come to consensus. So what is it like to, to operate through that process? I, I would imagine there's a bunch of different sticky points. Uh, is this, is this, are these easy problems to overcome? Is, is when a problem arises, is it, is it generally, are they generally solvable on a relatively quick basis? Or what are the difficulties of these problems that, uh, coordination problems, and, and what is generally the, the path that these problems get solved by? It depends. Um, sometimes things are no-brainers. Like sometimes a problem is a problem just because we haven't thought of it yet. And so we put it out, we hash it out. We're like, okay, this makes sense. Let's just, let's just do this. Uh, for example, um, we use snappy for compression. Uh, there's two types. There's like this block compression and the stream compression. And we just said snappy on the spec for a while. And uh, finally somebody's like, well, shit, we need to hash out which one it is. We put up an issue. It was obvious that for, gossip, it made sense to use block compression, um, done, you know, everyone's like, yeah, cool. No problem. Um, and, and at the end of the day, my job there is like, okay, someone had a problem. Uh, let's make sure that everyone's aware of the problem. Let's get some thumbs up. Cool. Done. Um, whereas sometimes it takes a little bit longer. Uh, sometimes the solution is not obvious and we have to think through it and have a, a good solution proposed, but often when a good solution is proposed, then we get some good thumbs up. Then sometimes we need a good solution, but the domain of good solutions is like very wide. Uh, for example, we're currently working on a um, unified API uh, for these clients. If you're aware, ETH1 clients have, um, have a JSON RPC API. Uh, there's semi-conformance across clients, but it's kind of a developer nightmare. The nuances between what's supported uh, different types being passed in, that kind of stuff. Um, so we're pushing to have a, a common API uh, out the gate 
so that we can enable our, enable our developers and users. Um, <clears throat> the thing about this kind of problem is there's tons of different ways to structure stuff. Uh, there's tons of different, if you look into like how to structure an API and read five blog posts, they're all going to tell you different design points and design decisions and trade-offs. Um, and everyone has, everyone has like a different background and different APIs they've used and different things they like. So this one's harder. Uh, this one, we had to have like a particular call, hash out some of the core details, and then we spun out like a little working group and we have five of us who are with different opinions trying to hash it out and then like we'll come up with a proposal for the wider uh, clients to like everyone to gen hopefully nitpick a little bit and get it done. Uh, this is hard because if you don't have someone who's willing to finally say, we're doing it this way, we're doing it that way, there, there isn't a right answer. There's no obvious right answer. And so it takes a little bit longer, it takes a little bit more compromise, um, and takes a little bit more effort probably on my end to uh, serve as that glue and, and sometimes be a decider. And, and being a decider, I, I try to not make unilateral decisions when they aren't, um, when it's not really needed, right? Um, or when it's like ultra critical to some core component. Whereas for this stuff, like at the end of the day, if it's, if I see that it's useful for me to say, okay, we have X, we have Y, uh, there's obviously some different trade-offs, but we got to go with X because we have to make a decision. Um, then I'll step in and do that. And, and for the API process, I really, <clears throat> for months, I just assumed it's going to be fine. They'll figure it out. Uh, and finally it came to a head a couple of weeks ago and I'm like, okay, we got to get in a room, we got to talk and we got to make some decisions. And I, I, I hope often I'm hoping increasingly. So there's people can make some decisions without me. Um, but this one, you know, needed a little bit more direction. Danny, uh, speaking of unilateral decision-making and, you know, even like how really, really baseline kind of structural decisions are made, like how does that work and where does Vitalik fit into that process? Because it does seem like a lot of this, like he is kind of like the architect and that's the sense I got even from the interview we had with him earlier this week. So, um, good question. I would say, first of all, that, uh, what we're trying to accomplish in ETH2 is, um, an extension of the original vision of Ethereum and, Vitalik's original original vision for for Ethereum, um, and so he is uh, very critical in this process, especially in some of the er, uh, lower level uh, fundamental research decisions. Like, do you have massive blocks and need supercomputers to process this, or do you have uh, sharded smaller blocks and you know, you can run portions of the system on commodity hardware. Like that comes a lot from the ethos of Ethereum, which comes a lot from uh, Vitalik and his kind of vision for what a, a decentralized system like this can and should be. Um, again, other things like uh, some of the core consensus research, uh, core sharding, this has come from Vitalik almost because, uh, simply because he's been working on this uh, since 2014 and slowly other people have been working on and extending and, and working on his work. Um, and so from that standpoint, um, he does serve as kind of a, a core architect. Um, he's also one to say that uh, if you look at 
contributions over the past two, three years, um, he has served a very substantial role, uh, but that he could disappear. And people like Justin Drake, people like uh, myself, people like Xiaowei Wang, um, and increasingly just random people on the internet, go check out Youth Research, uh, could carry a lot of the heavy, heavy work forward. Um, so in that sense, he has been critical. Um, in that sense, I don't think we'd be here without him. Uh, but also, um, he's not making, he doesn't, ma he doesn't care to make a lot of these fine-grained decisions uh, day to day. Um, because, again, you know, his head's in the clouds. He's working on crazy lattice cryptography and, and things that are going to change the world two years from now rather than right now. I will say, though, that I kind of, I, I see this project, the ETH2 extension of Ethereum, uh, the um, essentially the upgrading of the core consensus of Ethereum. I see this as a project that certainly has um, some, especially early on, um, decisions made by a small group. Um, probably myself, Justin, and Vitalik made a lot of decisions early on in this process. Um, but that, as more people come into this process, um, and as more people on our team, more people on other R&D teams, um, people on ETH research, people all across all these client teams, validators, each time we add like a ring of more users and more people contributing, um, we, you see a depth, an increasing uh, engagement of, in decision-making along the way. So yes, some sort of like benevolent technocracy plants the seed. Um, but if you take a look at what is happening today, um, it's not driven by uh, purely by that benevolent technocracy. Um, it's uh, uh, that core. It's, it's driven by um, probably well over 100 people regularly interacting with and influencing and, and making decisions kind of all over the place on this thing. And like I mentioned, uh, the outermost part of this concentric ring right now is um, validators. Uh, obviously, we haven't reached uh, production in mainnet, but we have more and more uh, validators, staking pools, uh, jumping in on the conversation. If you look at some of these, the client repos, they'll say, well, you know, I'm, I'm having, I'm not seeing like optimal performance on my client in terms of like the messages getting on chain. Uh, could this be X, Y, or Z and engaging with it on that. Um, they're also popping in and saying, okay, withdrawal credentials are structured this way. Um, that might be non-optimal with uh, decentralized staking pools. Uh, what were the design decisions here? How can we improve this? Is this something we can do now? Can we do it in a supplicant phase? Um, so, it's radially outward. We increasingly have more and more people on this process. Um, and it's, uh, there are some people that are kind of core to, to keeping things moving, keeping, making decisions, et cetera. But, uh, there's a, there's a massive, increasingly massive community working on this thing. Um, and we'll get there. Uh, once we integrate existing Ethereum into this upgraded consensus mechanism, um, and kind of move in fully into the sharded universe, um, the next concentric ring of people interacting with this and influencing it is, you know, the entire community, uh, the entire user base of Ethereum. Kind of, you know, I think there's a great point to transition, but stay kind of on the line of coordination. Like, is there a sweet spot for coordination and the amount of, of contributors in Ethereum 2 right now? Just because once you add on all these companies and every single person that is building on 
you know, and using the existing proof of work Ethereum chain, like that becomes exponentially more difficult to coordinate. Um, and I think you've seen that obviously in, in Ethereum, uh, the existing Ethereum chain today uh, is much less agile in upgrading itself and integrating new changes and things um, than it was a few years ago. Um, and I think there's a lot of nuance to why that is. Um, and I think you've actually seen uh, with Piper and Alexei moving uh, the stateless Ethereum project forward, uh, you've seen a renewed vigor to, um, to upgrade and, and, and kind of keep things moving forward. Uh, but I think a part of it certainly because there's just a lot of personalities, there's a lot of uh, interests and things. So um, it does tend to um, solidify in a certain extent, which is maybe not necessarily the worst thing. Um, but Ethereum, uh, <clears throat> to reach like the ultimate vision of a scalable proof of stake system, uh, decentralized, whatever the hell we're building, um, for some technical reasons, um, this was kind of shifted into its own little project into a radical upgrade that we would then be able to move Ethereum back into. Uh, but also for some like social and coordination uh, reasons, that's been incredibly beneficial uh, to be able to let Ethereum, you know, Ethereum today, I don't, I don't know, it's twenty billion dollar market cap, twenty five depends on the depends on the the moment in time you happen to look. Um, but there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of users, a lot of stuff. And and keeping that stable and kind of moving forward while we like move extremely rapidly uh, in this like separate isolated domain has been uh, I think crucial in being able to orchestrate some of the uh, more radical upgrades that we're trying to bring into the system. So the listeners of this podcast are, are pretty informed, so they generally understand the roadmap of ETH2. Uh, but as we get into more concrete details of ETH2, I think it, it should be good uh, good to have a high-level overview. So can you kind of give us the, the roadmap for ETH2 development, and then we're going to get into where we are in that roadmap today? First of all, and I've, I've, allu- I've said it very explicitly a few times in this podcast already, I, uh, ETH2 is um, kind of an upgraded consensus protocol, okay, consensus mechanism for Ethereum, whatever Ethereum may be, whether it be the current chain in there or whether it be uh, the kind of the community and user base, um, probably some combination of both. Um, And so uh, to be that upgraded uh, consensus mechanism, um, you know, we have to have a world, especially because we're moving to proof of stake, a world in which these validators can exist um, and come to consensus on things. Um, and secondly, uh, we need these validators to be able to come to consensus on a lot of things, uh, rather than just like a single, uh, chains worth of crap, uh, of stuff. Um, so, um, the steps in this process are first, let's get a bunch of validators, uh, and have them be able to come to consensus. Uh, and that is what phase zero is. Phase zero is this core, um, it's what we call the, the beacon chain. Uh, it's where the validators live. Um, it's where they come to consensus on blocks. Uh, they come to consensus on their balances. They come to consensus on the, the core system level things. Um, and abstractly in a way that they could then come to consensus about a lot more. Um, so the idea is, uh, come to consensus about this system, connect things into the system. Now you have con- you've come to consensus on a lot of things. Um, and so phase zero, come to consensus on the system. 
phase one, come to consensus on a lot of things. Those lot of things uh, that we're integrating into this thing is uh, shards. Uh, shards being independent uh, blockchains of about the capacity of uh, one Ethereum chain today. Uh, they're designed in that way such that consumer hardware can um, follow at least one, probably multiple of these chains. Um, and so each of these, each of these chains is like C resources, which C represents consumer hardware. Um, and phase zero allows us, again, allows us to come to consensus of the system. Then we plug in uh, some amount of shard chains to be um, under the umbrella of that core consensus. Um, and then for a long time, <clears throat> this thing is uh, ever evolving. So there's a little bit of nuance into uh, what a, and that, that was phase one, what a, a phase two is and can be. Um, and there's another term being thrown around, which is a phase 1.5. Um, <clears throat> first and foremost, uh, we have an existing Ethereum chain today. Um, we have existing users, we have existing applications, we have existing value. Um, and this upgrade, first and foremost, is for Ethereum. It's for that thing. Um, and so um, one of these shards is to be uh, what Ethereum is today. Essentially take the Ethereum chain, uh, plug it under this uh, new upgraded consensus. That is what is being deemed a phase 1.5. Uh, in which we have a bunch of shards, which are just data, uh, don't necessarily have execution or smart contracts as we know and love today, uh, and one single shard uh, that would be the uh, Ethereum, ETH1, ETH1X, whatever you may call it. Um, and so that's the, that's the most, so phase zero, system level, core consensus, phase one, shard chains, they're all just a bunch of data, but we can come to consensus on a lot of it. Phase 1.5, let's integrate ETH1 into ETH2, um, benefit from the uh, security benefits of proof of stake. I'm sure we could debate that a little bit, CK. Um, and also benefit from having access to a highly scalable data layer, which is gonna be really cool, couple with uh, all of our, uh, all the exciting um, like roll-up stuff. Uh, there's a lot of fun stuff people can do with layer one data. Um, a full phase two, um, the original vision there is to then have uh, execution accounts, contracts across all of these shards and to have communication uh, between them. This is exactly the form that this final uh, phase two may or may not take is probably one of the more actively researched and prototyped items today. Uh, the EWASM team has a great project going on where they're, it's called ETH1X64, I believe, in which they're uh, prototyping, putting uh, 64 essentially copies of Ethereum on all of these shards, uh, testing communication, testing overhead and complexities there. Um, there's a lot of other research that has been kind of set aside on EEs, uh, execution environments in which you might make these shards even more abstract than the existing Ethereum today and generally extensible in, in ways that we hadn't previously had in Ethereum. Um, and there's also the path, uh, great debate as to whether you put um, EVM on all of these shards or whether the existing Ethereum virtual machine or that you put some sort of uh, WASM variant, um, which might, uh, there's a trade-off there. The WASM, you might benefit from um, 
wide adoption across other chains, across the web. Uh, but at the same time, we have uh, tons, increasingly uh, tons of like tooling and, and uh, robust ways to interact with EVM. Uh, and so there's, there's a little bit of a trade-off there. And then there's also one other like asterisk uh, that some people are beginning to be excited about. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm a skeptic until we see some great roll-up stuff actually in, on mainnet. Uh, but some people say, let's put, let's put EVM, let's put the existing Ethereum on that single shard um, and let's go all in on roll-ups um, and use this data layer uh, and kind of keep the single chain execution chain uh, complexity as is and um, get all of our scalability out of rollups. I, I think I find that intriguing, um, but I also am, I'm always, I'm simultaneously always excited about layer two um, and always like slightly disappointed. Um, we've had a lot of layer two solutions, both in Ethereum and Bitcoin that are supposed to solve all the world's problems. Um, and then like we get, we almost get there and then it's like, oh crap, that wasn't quite what we thought it was going to be. Um, so I'm hoping, um, I'm very optimistic about this like combination of layer two uh, scaling that scales with layer one data. Um, but I'm not ready to like put all the, I don't know, some betting analogy, put all my chips on that card. Yeah, put all my eggs on that, that chip. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's what's going on. Um, there's, some, there's still some decisions to be made, especially with that phase two and what that looks like. Uh, and I guess another thing that you could do is if, if data chains are really useful, then you could have some subset that are execution chains and some subset that are data chains instead of going all execution chains. Um, so there's, there's a, it's a little bit of design decisions to, to figure out. And one more thing about the, um, the phase 1.5 is uh, this stuff's being prototyped today. Uh, one of the, it's a, really this beautiful coupling of uh, ETH2 clients and ETH1 clients where an ETH2 client is uh, handles all the complexity of the core consensus, um, and the the ETH2 the ETH1 client then is kind of uh, for the user layer, for transactions, for uh, the creation of of this specific type of shard block, for managing state or statelessness, some combination, um, and we have uh, some members of the Geth team recently have been taking. Geth and Geth has this notion of a consensus engine in it, which they have two today. One is proof of work. One is Clique. Uh, Clique is used on Gorly. It's more of like a, a signing thing where some people can be um, signers to make blocks. Um, and they're actually uh, seeing if they can easily do some surgery to make a new consensus engine that's based off of RPC, uh, in which you might have an ETH2 consensus. Uh, the consensus component and ETH1 client live in harmony right next to each other where essentially the, the ETH2 uh, client is the master of consensus and the ETH1 client is the master of uh, state and transactions um, and the ETH2 client kind of drives uh, the, ETH, the ETH1 client in a sense right there. And so there's, there's some cool prototyping going on that. Um, there's a couple of ETH research posts and increasingly more people uh, diving into that component of it. So I'm sure this is your favorite question, but let's talk about timelines. Uh, and so we, as a community member who is non-technical, I feel like we are on the cusp of uh, phase zero, even though there's no concrete date with that. Uh, and, and also something that Vitalik said in our recent podcast with him was that uh, 
the concept of compounding progress, where a lot of the uh, client teams and, and the people working on ETH2 are learning how to work on ETH2. And so a lot of that, um, a lot of that is, is in the rearview mirror. And so uh, the, the bullish case or the optimistic case is that, you know, ETH, the phase one is not too far behind uh, phase zero and, and likewise with, with ETH2. Is, is that accurate or how do you, what are your thoughts on the That's timeline? That's my general assessment. Um, let me, let's look in the past before we look in the future. The, um, I don't know how long we've worked on this thing. It's been two years, a uh, year and a half. So I don't know. Um, but, uh, although we've been, although clients have been working on this thing for a long time, uh, we drag them to the mud for a while. First, we rewrote the spec every day, um, on like a hack MD doc. Then we finally put it into a spec repo and like, Still, every week we're like rewriting the spec and changing everything because uh, it it wasn't it wasn't good enough. Um, but client teams, you know, some grants were given and client teams were like trying to keep up. And so a lot of that, like they re they rewrote their shit. I, I don't even like I owe all these people so many beers because like that's not like the amount of the amount of crap they put them through at the beginning was was terrible. So then we got this spec freeze at like the end of June last year. Um, and we're like, okay, we're doing it. Uh, no more changes on phase zero. Uh, let's bring this thing to mainnet. And then we all went to DevCon and, uh, things were getting close. We had this nice interop retreat where people or, uh, clients were talking and, and some real concrete stuff was happening, some excitement. Um, we went to DevCon and everyone's like the cross shard communication protocol, everyone is in like users, um, really listening to DAP developers and users. Um, you know, the asynchrony of cross shard happening every epoch, which is about every six minutes, uh, was just like not going to work. Um, and, and so there was a reformulation, a reduction in shards, a slight change in structure, um, to allow for cross linking every slot. So like every six seconds you can have, um, or every 12, 12 seconds, you can have, um, communication between these shards. Um, and, but in doing so we unfroze the specs. And we changed a bunch of shit. And um, so a lot of that, what was uh, kind of culminating into the testnet phase at the end of the year, uh, got pushed back and we're recovering from that. And only in the past like month are we really back at that, that phase. Um, so that's my fault. I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> so clients have been written and rewritten. And so in some, in some fact, that's actually like they become more of experts because of that. And some of that compounding is them being dragged through the mud, them having to rewrite it, them having to think about it over and over again. So, so yes, I, I do agree. Um, you know, you talk to like Preston from Prismatic, you talk to Paul from Lighthouse, like these guys, these guys know what's up. Like they know their clients in and out. Uh, they know how to optimize these things. They know how to think about the different algorithms available. Uh, you know, the testing has become more and more robust. Um, and so, yes, I, I think there's some simplicity to that. Um, and so, yes, I think we are on the cusp of phase, a phase zero launch. Um, there are a handful of little moving parts. Um, there's this BLS IETF spec that we've been waiting on. Um, that keeps almost being final. And then uh, we get a new draft. The, the, the thing is, if we launch 
um, and we don't, we're not on a conformant IETF BLS standard, um, then we're going to be, we're going to be on our own little Island. Uh, we're gonna have to write and maintain all the crypto libraries. We're not going to get those like, uh, tons of benefits of other people like touching and, and working on these things. Um, and which is kind of like CAC, uh, which is the hash function in Ethereum today. Uh, it, it was like almost the decided on hash function for everyone to use. Instead, everyone used this slight variant, SHA-3. Um, and it, it's kind of sucked for interoperability. It sucked for like libraries and uh, just all that kind of stuff. So we're waiting on this thing. Draft 7 was just released. We're putting our foot down. We're saying we're not upgrading anymore. Uh, the spec maintainers are they're down. Um, and so I think that this is no longer a blocker. Um, I thought that at draft six. So I'm hoping it's really not a blocker anymore. I was going to say, listening to you kind of like run through all this stuff, like it, to me, it sounds a lot like ETH2 could be suffering from second system syndrome. Are you familiar with the, this idea behind second system syndrome? Um, I am not intimately familiar but i could i can guess so the idea is that uh, a system is made a system is relatively reasonable the creators of the, are reasonably successful uh so eth1 uh re, you know i would say it's relatively successful so the creators of that are like let's correct fix everything in eth1 let's make a better you know protocol and then they just right. stuck just trying right. to fix you know all these things forever and they never actually ship something we're why, definitely like, aware of this what why like <laughs> so why isn't e2 uh like a classic case of second system syndrome i think i think you're seeing components of that um but at the same time uh i'm having to play the bad guy in some of these like ongoing decisions if you go and look at the spec repo uh justin drake showed up and was like you know what we could change this and I'm like which I love you, Justin, which blew my mind. I'm like, no, we're not changing any of this shit. Um, and there was a, uh, something that could be made potentially more elegant. Uh, and, and I said, I, and I, I was speaking alongside, um, many of the client teams, we all showed up on this PR and we we're just like, ain't going to happen. Um, and so I hear you, um, the second, whatever syndrome, second system syndrome S. <laughs> um, I think that that has been, uh, partially at play, but, uh, there's also, um, we're doing this thing like super in the public, which a lot of systems probably are not there. Most things aren't really built this way. Um, and most things that have probably suffered from that, uh, are sitting behind like a successful company. Um, they're just like kind of working in the background. Um, and there may or may not be the crazy pressures that honestly we feel, um, we're like hyper aware of uh the community wanting this um and the community be ready and the community being excited uh, we're hyper aware of uh not meeting uh the expectations that we set uh, and the pressures to ship are very real and i think are definitely uh outweighing the second system syndrome at this point um so there's part of that like part of that probably helped us um, you know, the first few specs that we wrote, they weren't good. Um, and we, we did take the time to make them good. Um, but at this point, the pressure to ship is, is, is here. And the, the you know, second system syndrome is just over here. Uh, so we're getting there. Um, ITF standard moving that forward. Um, and we're really, we're at this, like, there are client audits, uh, from third parties that are happening, 
Um, I think the first of which Lighthouse is probably happening starting in the second week of May. Uh, Prisms is starting in a similar spot. A couple other teams are kind of lining up some audits. So audits are happening. Um, I'm trying to give you the things that like are still could potentially, uh, you know, or the, the variables in getting this thing out. Um, and uh, these test nets. Uh, test nets, multi-client test nets. Um, there are, there is a multi-client test up, test net up at this very moment uh, with two clients, uh, Prismatic and Lighthouse. Um, and this is not the multi-client test net. It's not one like Gorley that, you know, we keep up for indefinitely. It's probably going to be restarted every week or something at this point. Uh, but it's this effort to uh, work through the tiny little bits that need to be standardized um, and kind of test things at scale. And that's that's kind of what's happening right now. And, and that stuff can go really well um, or it can go really poorly. Uh, so far, signals point to uh, it's going to go well. Um, but, the, you know, that's that's having stable, successful test nets at scale um, is really that final thing um, that decides on when we can when we push this thing out the door. So when it comes to the point where phase two has been rolled out and successfully gone live, uh, what's next for what's next for Danny? What's next for all the innovation with all the clients? Like, have you guys thought about that or is that just too far? Yeah, I don't know. Someone asked me this question. They asked me what I was going to do after we shipped all this stuff in uh, Sydney at EdCon last year. And I said, I, I think I'm going to open up a coffee shop and hang out like in a mountain town. Um, so that's a, that's a, that's a potential. Um, I also, I fucking love this stuff. I mean, if I, if I continue to work in, um, technology in any capacity, um, it will certainly be in open source and it will likely be in the, uh, in this domain. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine ever writing a closed source piece of code ever again. Um, you, I don't think you can make me. So, uh, if, if in technology, certainly open source likely, uh, keep pushing on fun stuff in this domain. Um, if not, I might just go like chill for a bit. Um, in terms of clients, you know, uh, our successful, the successful clients, um, are getting, um, kind of continuous waves of grants from the EF. Um, and so that's something that like, as, as we move to mainnet and clients prove themselves, um, you know, there's going to be good solid grants to keep them moving. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm also excited to see what these companies, you know, cause I think most of them are companies, what, what they do, um, uh, how they might choose to monetize, how they might choose to be, you know, because they are experts in this domain, um, how they can like spin out their companies to do other interesting things. Um, you know, for example, I think the Sigma prime guys, they have like actually a pretty successful security firm, uh, independent of this thing. So it's kind of like a nice value add, like they get really deep in clients and now they're like, I think they've actually audited, um, a client or two from, uh, other chains cause like they they know clients, they know security. Um, so there's some cool stuff there. Um, you know, I, I could, I could see some, some companies like going the consulting route, maybe like helping enterprise setups, uh, you know, build out toolings, I don't know, whatever. Um, uh, and I'm also curious to see people experiment with some of these like layer two client funding mechanisms, you know, like put in a default of 0.1% of your, or 1% of your transaction fees, uh, go into like a client multi-sig and like, I can go and take, turn it off, but like, whatever, I like my client. Um, so hopefully there's some cool experimentation there. Um, and you know, these guys, some of these guys are 
they're going to know the system, the ends out of the system better than anyone else. So maybe there's some cool uh, application developers. Uh, maybe some of these, the client firms uh, make some powerful applications on this, this new system. Danny, just to close out the episode, what likelihood do you think that ETH2 is successful? Percents are great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 100%. So 100% E2 is going to be successful. There's a long road ahead, man. Um, like there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen. It depends, I guess, on what you mean by success. Uh, I'm extremely confident in um, in Ethereum, in what we have going, uh, and I the the, <clears throat> the framing of E2 being um, you know an upgraded consensus environment for Ethereum. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing that we have to do is not have something catastrophic happen uh, because as long as we can keep Ethereum moving, um, put it in an upgraded context, um, then I think I think it's going to be a grand success. Um, I the chances of catastrophic things happening and trying to recover from those, that's probably where my 100 percent doesn't actually come in. Um, and that's where uh, at the end of the day, we're going to make sure we get it right instead of doing it fast. Um, and so any, any delays, I think at this point are because, um, the software, the testing, uh, et cetera, needs, needs a little bit more time. So 99%. Your confidence scares the shit out of me. <laughs> you gotta be a little crazy to make the fun stuff happen. Danny, I asked this question to all of our guests that have come on recently. Uh, I, I, Particularly, I view these crypto economic systems like Bitcoin and Ethereum as political organizations. They are uh, a way for people to express their values about the way that the world should work or, or the way that the world should be. In your opinion, what, what, are, what does the political party of uh, Ethereum represent or what is the ethos of the Ethereum blockchain slash crypto economic system slash community? Yeah, I mean... the. the that's a lot. The, the first couple of things that come to mind is, is freedom and open access. Um, you know, the, the ability to uh, construct new systems, uh, to experiment uh, freely, and to combine things at will uh, is, is really, I think, at the core of the ESOS. And I know that that's all a little, like, strangely enough, that can those things can harbor all sorts of stuff. Like they could harbor um, me making a new totalitarian system or it could, could harbor like me making uh, like an incredibly open financial engineering environment, you know, and it's really the, like the openness and the willingness to experiment, um, I think defines Ethereum, um, both probably at the today in layer one, but certainly in the application layer. Um, and I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of like, the reason I'm here is I, I'm pretty concerned. I'm, I'm actually kind of a Luddite. I'm like deeply concerned about the trajectory of society, especially in the, with, in the context of technology, um, the context of these big firms controlling us, um, controlling our finances, but also like controlling our fucking minds, man. They, uh, and these decentralized systems, um, I think, have the ability to at least uh, shake up the status quo and hopefully find a better equilibrium for this trajectory. Um, and I suppose if I'm going to frame it in like a, 
a, a Bitcoin versus Ethereum mode right there um, is I think if we're going to use these systems successfully to re-sculpt the trajectory, uh, that we need to be a little bit more aggressive. I think we need to be a little bit more open to experimentation um, and open to exploring the design space um, kind of from all angles. Um, and look, I don't, even, I don't even need to frame it in terms of Bitcoin Ethereum. I don't, I don't know. I'm sure there's like tons of people pushing on the envelope there. Um, but from my intimate perspective on Ethereum, I know we're doing it in Ethereum. Um, so that's, that's at least something. Cool. Yeah. Well, hey, Danny, thanks for coming on. I'm sure we could have another show where we just debate, you know, all the little things. But we wanted to, to you know, get your take on, on ETH2 and stuff like that. Um, my opinion on ETH2 matters far less. Um, for those who don't know you, where can they find you and who do you want to hear from? Um, okay. So I'm on GitHub, <laughs> DJRTWO. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, Danny Ryan, at Danny Ryan. Um, honestly, uh, you know, we got plenty of clients. Um, but if you want to hack on uh, test nets and tools and testing and like, it, honestly, you ever heard of Proto Lambda? If you're interested in doing the kind of work that Proto Lambda does, I need more proto lambdas. Uh, if you want to, if you want to do that kind of work and you are up for the task, hit me up. Awesome. You heard the guy, Danny, thanks for coming on POV crypto and giving us your time. Really appreciate your insights. And this was really a fantastic episode. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. You guys can follow the pod at POV crypto pod. You can follow me at trustless state, both on Twitter and on bankless. Christian. Yep. You can find me at CK underscore snarks for all you ETH heads, just bringing you down to reality. At least another 2%. <laughs> thanks for, thanks for coming on. Right. Thanks, Dan. Yeah. Bye guys. Talk to you soon.